This podcast is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Susan Everingham. I'm the director of the Pittsburgh office, and it is my pleasure to welcome you to this conversation tonight about a topic that has dominated our headlines for months, which is uh, what's next for Iran and U.S.-Iran relations. As I'm sure you know, the nuclear deal was concluded. The sanctions against Iran, Iran, some of them, have been lifted. And relations with the United States and Iran are improving, but they're hardly normal. So lots of questions in front of us today. Uh, what's going to happen with the deal? Is Can it survive? What are the challenges uh, to maintaining the agreement? And what are the implications for the United States, Iran, Israel, and the Middle East as a whole? We have a lot to talk about tonight. And fortunately, we have two wonderful experts to help us understand some of these issues. Uh, let me tell you that Ali Nader is a senior international policy analyst uh, based in our D.C. office. Ali is joined by Ambassador Dan Simpson. He's a, a writer at the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, and he's had a long, distinguished career um, in the State Department before that, and uh, uh, somebody who's familiar to, to many of you. So, Dan, we can't thank you very much for, for uh, being willing to participate in this conversation with us. Well, I'm delighted to have the opportunity to participate in this uh, conversation, and I thank Rand enormously for having brought uh, Ali to Pittsburgh to talk with us about this uh, very, very important foreign affairs issue. It has uh, slipped from the front page a little bit uh, since the uh, real uh, controversy that surrounded the uh, nuclear agreement. But that remains uh, very much at the forefront of uh, American concerns uh, about Iran, American concerns about security in the Middle East, and so on. So I think I, I would like to start by asking you, about the impact of this agreement on both Iran and the United States, because it's it's still very much an issue in this place. Uh, good evening, everybody. It's great being here. Uh, so I'm going to start with just a little description of what the nuclear agreement has achieved, mm -hmm. because there's a lot of rhetoric, especially in our election season, on the nuclear issue. Uh, but looking at the facts... Uh, I think that it's a very solid nonproliferation agreement. Uh, since July, when the agreement was signed between Iran and the P5 plus 1, the UN Security Council in Germany, Iran has shipped out 98% of its enriched uranium. And I think that's actually a huge deal because that was a major issue of concern and contention for years. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't get a lot of media attention uh, and it hasn't really been on the political radar like it should be. Uh, but essentially, Iran can't use that uranium to build nuclear weapons. Uh, also, Iran has taken a number of other steps, like dismantling 6,000 of its centrifuges. Mm -hmm. It has reconfigured its heavy water reactor in the city of Iraq, which is in central west Iran. And so that can't be used to produce nuclear weapons through plutonium uh, production and fuel. It has agreed to very intrusive inspections into its nuclear facilities. The International Atomic Energy Agency has basically a 24-7 uh, 
view of Iran's enrichment facilities and other facilities as well. And Iran has agreed not to install more advanced centrifuges for the next 15 years, which is the duration of the nuclear program. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think we have to look at where we are, where we were two and a half years ago and where we are now. When the negotiations started right after President Hassan Rouhani took power in Iran, uh, the U.S. intelligence community believed Iran was about a month or two months away from being able to produce nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. Now the assessment um, by the intelligence community and the U.S. government and virtually all nonproliferation experts is Iran is about a year away from that mm -hmm. capability. And so let's say Iran tomorrow, for whatever reason, decided to not implement the agreement and dashed toward and nuclear weapons, we would have about a year to react, which mm -hmm. is a uh, you know, great deal of time. Quite a bit. Yeah. And so the nuclear agreement has achieved quite a bit, and the United States has lived up to its part. Sanctions have been eased on Iran. The economy They're has not, not improved. No, only Congress can remove the sanctions <laughs> permanently by passing new legislation. So overall, in terms of constraining Iran's nuclear capabilities. It's been positive. Uh, politically, in our country, there's still a big battle over it. Mm -hmm. In Iran, the political system has accepted the agreement. The public has welcomed it uh, quite strongly. Um, but Iran has not really changed as a country. And I think if we expected for that one agreement would change everything, that would yeah. be very unrealistic. Now... There is still opposition to this agreement in Iran. Uh, for example, the supreme leader had something to say about that this morning. Now, candidates for supreme leader in the United States also <laughs> <laughs> have had something to say about this. So in both countries, there's still controversy about it. Well, uh, Iran's supreme leader, Ayatollah Khamenei, he supports the agreement. Uh, what he says in public differs than what he has done behind the scenes because mm -hmm. from the very beginning when President Rouhani and his foreign minister, Zarif, started negotiating, uh, Khamenei said that he supported the nuclear negotiators. And when people in the political establishment in Iran really criticized the negotiators, uh, Khamenei condemned it. Mm -hmm. you know, all along he said... I'm willing to change our approach on this. You know, he calls it heroic flexibility, that he could be flexible on the nuclear issue, and especially when it came to the United States. Uh, but he said he didn't trust the United States. He didn't think the United States would implement the agreement. Uh, but he, and when the agreement was signed, he said, well, let's see how it goes. I'm still skeptical. But if he truly opposed it, it would not have been signed by Iran. Sure. Uh, now, what Khamenei said the other day uh, during his Nauru speech, Nauru being the Persian New Year, New Year yeah. he said that sanctions relief in Iran have not produced benefits economically for Iran. And I think the reason for this is Khamenei wants to make sure that President Rouhani doesn't score too many points uh, through the nuclear agreement because they have very different ideas 
in terms of where the country should be headed, mm-hmm. uh, economically, politically, socially, culturally. Can we just a- mm-hmm. insert the question, mm-hmm. what has been the economic impact of the agreement uh, in Iran. Right. And then at some point, could you circle back and talk about the impact in the United States? Because I think that's that's important, too, to us, too. And that, that was a key source of controversy around the nuclear debate because uh, people have been saying, well, we gave a lot of money to Iran. Why do we give $50 billion to Iran? Uh, which is not true because uh, the $50 billion that was frozen – Assets basically were. It was Iranians' right money. Yeah, it was their money. The only, really, one of the big reasons they signed the agreement because we were holding their money. Mm-hmm. We basically, very simple. We give your money back to you. You reduce your <laughs> nuclear program. So the assets had to be released. Uh, the estimate is about fifty billion dollars uh, of Iran's oil money, and my estimate is that most of that will go. Uh, into domestic projects, so improving mm-hmm. the energy sector in Iran, building schools, uh, Im- improving infrastructure. Of course, the government is going to pocket quite a bit of it, and some could be spent on uh, financing terrorism. But the majority of it has to be spent nationally uh, within Iran. Uh, in terms of the overall economic outlook, it hasn't been great for Iran. And the reason is not really because of sanctions relief. The pl- price of oil is too low. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's about, I think, $40 uh, per barrel right now. It hit 30 And uh, last year, Iran needed 60 to $80 per barrel to balance its mm. budget. And so as long as oil prices are low, uh, Iran is going to suffer economically, and also uh, foreign investment is going to is not going to gush into Iran right away. You know, it's going to take a lot of time for foreign companies to be comfortable to trade with Iran again. One of the arguments was that with the removal mm-hmm. of sanctions, that the Iranian uh, energy. industry would be able to modernize Mm -hmm. and consequently increase its production and then that that would serve as uh, to put more money into the economy which in general would improve the situation of the economy is it it could be that it's too early for that to be felt or i don't know is that is that an accurate uh, estimate or not i'll tell you a story i uh, spoke to an Iranian-American who used to work in the oil industry uh, years ago during the Shah's time and the early years of the revolution. And he went back to Iran recently and looked at the oil facilities and told me he wept with frustration Mm -hmm. because the oil industry has declined so much Mm -hmm. since the Shah's time. So um, the Iranian government itself estimates that it needs about $200 billion dollars to modernize its oil industry, and it still lacks certain technologies to develop natural gas. Iran shares a huge natural gas field with Qatar, which is enormously wealthy from the natural gas. And so Qatar has tapped into this field, and Iran has not been able to because Qatar has access to liquidified natural gas, Mm -hmm. LNG, which only U.S. companies hold. And they're not going to give it to Iran because U.S. primary sanctions still 
remain. So, if those sanctions were removed, could they then sell that technology? Yeah, but that's not going to happen anytime soon. No. Uh, and so basically, Qatar is sucking up the natural gas in Iran. Can't take advantage of it. So that's one, just one example of. Uh, why it's going to take a really long time for the economy and the oil sector to improve in Iran. To feel the impact of the removal of, well, the removal of sanctions. And there are other issues. I mean, corruption is uh, very high. Iran is assessed to be one of the most corrupt countries on earth. (laughs) Doing business is really hard in Iran. There's a lot of red tape. Uh, You have to deal with a lot of government agencies. The Government itself is very divided among different institutions and factions. So while Iran has a lot of potential, because as a young population, one of the most highly educated uh, populations of the Middle East, actually, uh, it's going to take some time for the potential to be tapped into. Let me swing back to another point, and that is what Iran was going to do with that whatever it is, $50 billion mm-hmm. or $56 billion or whatever. Um, there, there is concern, obviously. You know, we are obsessed with the threat of Islamic terrorism mm-hmm. and so on. But one does see Iran uh, involved in a, a rivalry with uh, Saudi Arabia right. uh, in that area, in the Gulf area. Saudi Arabia being... The, let's call it the leader of the Sunni Muslim nations and mm-hmm. Iran being the leader of the Shiites. Now, uh, where they are butting heads is in Yemen. And Iran is supporting the Houthi rebels, if you will, if, they're, if you want to call them rebels. And Saudi Arabia is supporting Salah and, you know, Abdul Hadi and so on. So there is an argument that would say that Iran is now free to use, Iran now has more money to use to finance, uh, what shall we call it? It's It's international regional rivalry with Saudi Arabia. Now, is that true, or would they do it anyway, or what? Yeah, well, technically, yes, it does have more money to do the things that the United States doesn't want it to do, but it was doing it before the nuclear agreement, before sanctions relief. And Iran doesn't have to spend a lot of money on its regional policies. So, for example, the Saudis spend billions, if not tens of billions of dollars worldwide in promoting their own ideology and supporting dependent governments or allied governments. Um, You know, Iran gives money to a few groups like Hezbollah. Hezbollah, um, Also has supported the Syrian regime quite substantially. That could be in the billions. But the funding to Hezbollah or Hamas or the Iraqi Shia militias or the Houthis are not in the billions of dollars. And even Iran's support to the Houthis is pretty minimal. I mean, the Saudis mm. say that Iran is behind every rock in Yemen. But the reality okay. is, yes, Iran has supported the Houthis, but it doesn't have as much leverage as the Saudis portray Iran as having. Now, is there a split in Iran itself about whether these foreign, what should we call them, adventures yeah. should continue or not? Well, within the government 
Not as much because when it comes to Saudi Arabia, there's universal opposition in Iran to the Saudis, uh, especially at the popular level. Now, uh, how much of that is religious and how much of it is it's everything. It's re- religious, it's uh, national, it's geopolitical. And there's a perception in Iran that the Saudis are behind the instability in the region, that they hate Iranians and they hate the Shia. And if you remember a couple of months ago, an Iranian mob burned down the Saudi embassy or a section of it in Tehran in reaction to Saudi Arabia's execution of a Shia cleric. Uh, So the approach in Iran is Saudi Arabia is our enemy more than any other country, more than the United States, even more than Israel. (laughs) But uh, with the Rouhani government, there has been an interest in engaging Saudi Arabia diplomatically. Uh, I would argue that the Saudis are the reluctant party Mm -hmm. currently uh, because they think any win for Iran is a loss for them, whereas I think— So they see it as a zero-sum game. Yes, zero-sum game. And the Rouhani government has said its approach is not zero-sum, that if there are mutual benefits, they would be willing to engage Saudi Arabia— as they have done with the United States, for example. Um, So when it comes to Syria, for example, Iran has been more eager to engage diplomatically. Saudi Arabia has been much more reluctant. Accepting that that uh, conflict or big regional, big regional powers pushing and shoving at each other is a bad thing, is there anything? Is there any role for the United States in trying to? It can't solve that problem, sure. but can it move it? Can it? Is there any role for the United States in moving it from the battlefield to the negotiating table? Well, already there's a ceasefire in Syria between the major opposition groups in the Syrian regime. Right. Uh, ISIS and Al Qaeda, the Nusra Front, are excluded. But the ceasefire is largely holding. And so I think that's a really positive uh, step, the most positive that we've seen in the last five years of Mm -hmm. conflict. Mm -hmm. Now, will that end the conflict? Uh, Not necessarily, but I think there's some realities the United States and the Saudis have to contend with, and that is the Assad regime is not going to fall. You know, with the Russian intervention... It's, it's there to stay for the foreseeable future. So there has to be a middle ground in which I'm not sure what comes you know, after a permanent ceasefire, what form of government is created in Syria. In Syria. Uh, but if the Sunni countries supporting the opposition to Assad expect a military solution, I think we're way past that point. I think you're right. <laughs> and then that leaves Yemen. And uh, for Yemen, uh, there's a war that's been going on for about a year and a half. And uh, the Saudis, uh, supported by the United States, have been uh, pounding the Mm -hmm. Houthis. And, of course, Iran has been supporting, although you point out modestly, the Houthis. Now, the current situation is that there's a ceasefire that is uh, supposed to begin at midnight on April 10th. And then there are supposed to be negotiations beginning 
April 18th in Kuwait. Now, if that were to occur and the degree to which, you know, one side is a proxy for Iran and the other side is a proxy for Saudi Arabia, if, if that were to end that war, wouldn't that be a good thing? And do you sure. think it's possible? Well, I think there have been several of these ceasefires that have failed. That's the trouble. Uh, and you know, I think Saudi Arabia is pursuing a, the wrong policy in Yemen. It's not achieving anything but destruction and devastation. Mm-hmm. And actually, there's an article, I believe, in the New York Times that basically questioned what the heck the United States is doing supporting well, that's a good question. Uh, Saudi Arabia. You know, some people think that the U.S. supported the Saudi so it could get their agreement on the nuclear issue. Because the Saudi did say, okay, we accept this. Let's move on. Uh, but the Yemen conflict, unfortunately, it's portrayed as a proxy conflict between Saudi Arabia and Iran, but it has re- deep local roots. Oh, yeah. The, the Houthis have been fighting the central government for years. Now they are the central government. And so it's not, just, it's not about really Iran so much as what's going on internally in Yemen. Mm-hmm. Of course, you know, I'll... I'll add something to what you said mm-hmm. about the U.S. support of the Saudis. A lot of that has to do with U.S. arms sales. I mean, the United States sells billions of dollars of arms to Saudi Arabia and also to the Persian Gulf states, mm-hmm. uh, the United Arab Emirates, uh, Qatar, uh, Bahrain, and so on, who are supporting uh, the Sunni elements in uh, in Yemen. So... That's the dog that we have in that fight. Uh, That is to say, uh, American mm, arms manufacturers who want to sell stuff to the Saudis. And if you sell arms to someone, then you are obliged to provide them technical support. And I wouldn't even swear that there aren't American co-pilots in the uh, Saudi aircraft that are uh, attacking uh, Yemen. So... Uh, well, the United States is reported to have provided targeting and logistical help to the Saudi Air Force. And cluster bombs. So. Uh, and I think the United States was in a very difficult position on the nuclear issue because it had to, I don't want to say keep its allies happy, at least keep its allies from completely panicking, meaning Saudi Arabia and Israel, but also engage with a rival country, Iran. And given the competition between Saudi Arabia and Iran and Israel and Iran, that was a hard thing to do. And you you really can't keep everybody happy. Uh, You know, the, the, the Saudis did not want U.S. engagement with Iran. They were unhappy that the two countries were even at the same table, but it is in American national security interests. Very much so no matter what any other country says. Now, you mentioned Israel, and uh, if people who were old, like me, uh, remember a time when Iran and Israel cooperated in the Middle East, Mm -hmm. and it was basically the Israelis and the Persians against the Arabs. Do you, how do you feel, how do you see Iranians looking at Israel now? Is there any possibility of uh, 
what shall we call it, detente mm. between those two countries in the region? At the very top, including Ayatollah Khamenei and the Revolutionary Guards and the conservative establishment, no, they would never consider detente. They're, they're very much opposed to Israel ideologically. Uh, within the elected government, President Rouhani and Zarif, my guess is they don't really think the rivalry is beneficial to Iran, but is in fact uh, damaging to Iran's interests. And one criticism that Ahmadinejad faced from Rouhani when Ahmadinejad was president yeah. was that he was being a loudmouth. You know, he's questioning the Holocaust and saying things like Israel should be wiped off the map. And, you know, some Iranian officials thought, well, if you believe that, that's fine, but don't say it in public. <laughs> uh, you're putting us in a difficult position. Uh, you know, there have been even Iranian officials who've said if Israel and the Palestinians achieve a peaceful solution, then Iran would support the Palestinians. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, those people are not necessarily in power today. I would say that the vast majority of Iranians don't really care very much about Israel, you know, like anybody else to care about bread and butter issues. Not that there's sympathy toward Israel. I mean, there will never be sympathy toward Israel the way, um, you know, we have in the West, the kind of relations we have with Israel. But strategically, you can make the argument it makes sense for Iran and Israel to at least have detente, if not work together. Because when the Shah was in power, there was extensive cooperation between the two. And mm -hmm. the Shah didn't necessarily like Israel, but he thought it was a useful partner against the Arab countries. Mm -hmm. Could that happen in the future? Theoretically, it's hard to see that though happening anytime soon. Well, even uh, during the Reagan years, there was the Iran, so-called Iran-Contra affair yeah. in which there were Israeli arms yeah. Well, uh, attitudes in, our, in Israel have relationship really, with Iran. Attitudes in Israel have really hardened toward Iran. You know, at, at, like you said at one point uh, during Reagan's presidency, Israeli officials told Reagan he should support Iran versus, versus Iraq in the war between the mm. two because uh, Iran was a lesser evil. And so even after the revolution, there was some ties between Iran and Israel, minimal, but the Labor Party especially hadn't given up on the idea of bringing back Iran in. Mm -hmm. uh, but that sort of thinking is long gone in Israel as well. And, you know, there, I was in Israel a couple of years ago, and there's not a lot of flexibility in thinking regarding Iran, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. But there are in Israel uh, Iranians. Sure. There, there are about 200,000 Israelis of Iranian origin. Mm -hmm. And they have some good scholars and thinkers. And I don't want to make you know, the entire Israeli establishment sound hawkish on the issue because, in fact, uh, many Israeli officials and former officials have endorsed the nuclear agreement and have said yeah. it's good for Israel, including Israel, Israel's most senior general. And uh, with within Israel's new national security strategy, Iran is barely mentioned mm -hmm. as a threat. So uh, there is somewhat of a consensus in Israel that the nuclear deal is good for Israel. But in terms of Iran going away as a threat in the long term, 
no, that you know that hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. But Israel should be pleased with the nuclear agreement. I think everybody should. Yeah, <laughs> I think so too. Yeah. Of course, for well, now, because it's being it's being enforced and it works for now. You know, will it hold into the future? There are no guarantees. No, um, but both sides have to enforce the agreement and and, the, and, and benefit from it. and benefit from it. And you know. Uh, some U.S. presidential candidates have said that they would tear up the agreement on the first day, and I think that's just a horrible idea. I mean, the United States can't tear up the agreement <laughs> because it's not for the United States to tear up. It's an international agreement. Well, but the United States can stop enforcing it, and I think basically the rest of the world would think, what What are you doing? What are you doing? Yeah. Especially if Iran is implementing it, and then the U.S. is seen as the bad party. And, of course, Iran is always able, if it wished, to, to begin winding the thing backwards and developing, redeveloping sure. uh, nuclear uh, weapons so, capacity. Hi- hypothetically, let's say President X of the United States decides to stop enforcing the agreement, then Iran technically can say that yeah. it can expand the nuclear agreement and when the United States asks countries like China to enforce new sanctions, they can say, why would we penalize our trading partner when you violated the agreement yourself? Mm-hmm. Well, here you are in the United States. Do you see uh, American companies and banks and so on seeing the opening to Iran as an opportunity? I think there are a lot of companies that are interested um, there is a perception that Iran is the last great remaining market that hasn't been opened up, and there's some truth to that. Uh, but the main challenge are U.S. primary sanctions against Iran mm-hmm. that have existed since 1980. Um, and the nuclear sanctions have been lifted, but the primary sanctions on human rights, uh, support for terrorism, all still remain. So it's very difficult for U.S. companies to engage Iran economically, more so than European and Asian countries. Not impossible, just more difficult. Uh, And then the political atmosphere in the United States is very hostile toward that. You know, if you're a big company, let's say you're a GE and you start trading with Iran, uh, it might not look so good for you. Boeing is exempted uh, it can sell parts to Iran, but Iran has also uh, purchased, I think, several dozen uh, civilian airliners from Airbus. Airbus yeah, and so yeah. the U.S. Uh, companies are not seeing great benefits from the agreement. Well, I may be excessively mercantile, but I hate to see American companies uh, passing up opportunities to. I mean, you know, it may change very slowly, yeah. right? I, yeah. it, it also depends who is the next U.S. president, and even just looking at all the candidates on both sides, there's really no positive view of engaging Iran. Everybody is quite skeptical. Yeah, I I would mostly agree with you, although I think partly uh, our candidates are staying away from foreign affairs because they, uh, unlike this group, they don't, they don't pay much attention to it, or they don't know much about it, you know, and so... Except not all of them. Not all yeah. of them, unfortunately, yeah. Now, one 
thing that we, we, including me, don't feel like I know enough about is the internal political dynamics mm-hmm. of of Iran. And you remember when we talked on the phone before this, I said I was going to ask you, sure. who are the five most important uh, yeah. uh, Iranian figures? It doesn't have right. to be five, but could you just lay out for us a little bit the political geography of Iran? I would say, of course, Ayatollah Khamenei, the supreme leader, who's leader for life. He's number one. Is his health good? Or? There are rumors that uh, he has cancer, that he has prostate cancer, and he had a surgery a couple of years ago. But I'm not a doctor, but he looks pretty healthy to me. <laughs> okay. Uh, he, he's still pretty vibrant. Yeah. But who knows? Um, uh, and then what really matters is who comes after him sure. once he passes away. But uh, number two would be the president, Hassan Rouhani. Sure. Uh, I think he's a very consequential figure. Various generals in the Revolutionary Guards. Uh, Qasem Soleimani, the head of the Quds forces, gets a lot of press in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, he runs Iran's operations in Syria and Iraq. Domestically, he's not very influential. Foreign policy is influential. But those guys are in business, aren't they? I don't know about him specifically, but the Revolutionary Guards are controlling big sectors of Iran's economy, and a lot of them are very wealthy. Mm-hmm. Um, so number four, I would say the head of the Guardian Council, that most people haven't heard of him, but his name is Ayatollah Janati. He's 80-something, and the Guardian Council is, uh, has the legal means to veto all candidates running for elections, whether the president, they're the president or members of parliament, and can veto any law. So it's basically, in effect, responsible for blocking reforms in Iran, which it did quite effectively in the 1990s. And these guys are conservative very, ayatollahs? Very, yes. So it's Especially Janati. Yeah. Uh, in Iran, he's called a dinosaur. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And fifth... I mean, there, there's so many people you could name. I think uh, Ayatollah Rafsanjani, the former president, I was going to say, still, where do you put Rafsanjani? He's still influential, less yeah. so than before, but uh, Rouhani is aligned with him. Uh, his ideas and allies are very alive in the elected government. He, he's still a big player. And Rouhani, I mean, I think everyone, well, people who were watching Iran welcomed his election, but he he wasn't that. A liberal, I mean, on the Iranian. No, scale, no he doesn't describe he? himself. He describes himself as a centrist, mm-hmm. uh, and even during the parliamentary elections that took place in February, Khamenei basically endorsed his approach by saying that Iranians shouldn't vote for the left or the right, but for the center. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's not a reformist in the mold of. President Khatami, for example, right. who is uh, excluded from the political system. He's pretty much out of the picture. No, he's – well, it's illegal to mention his name. <laughs> and I wonder if we could get some American <laughs> politicians on a list like that. <laughs> <laughs> so it's illegal for Iran's media, uh, official media, which is almost all media, to mention, to mention him. 
but he put a video on YouTube asking Iranians to vote for more moderate candidates. And so supposedly that may have swayed a lot of Iranians to vote for certain candidates. And Ahmadinejad is out of the picture? Uh, He's on the down low. Um, Mm -hmm. He's not gaining a lot of attention. And I think he might be even a little worried uh, because there have been quite a few trials regarding corruption, and people associated with him are going to jail, including his his own officials. And so he's, I think, keeping a low profile. Mm -hmm. Well, I see in the back that I'm supposed to relinquish asking the questions and give you a chance to do that. So I hope you do. Can you say something Nancy about Bernstein, the, yeah, the recent Jay election Street. and and what that might say about where things are headed? Sure. So Iran just had two elections on the same day for parliament and the assembly of experts, which is responsible for appointing the next supreme leader. And parliament, most of the reformists were disqualified by the Guardian Council that I mentioned uh, but a lot of more centrist candidates got into parliament, and uh, many candidates associated with the Ahmadinejad presidency that were on the far, far right of the political spectrum were kicked out of parliament. So parliament is, has moved somewhat to the center. There's a runoff election in April, mid-April, so, and so we don't know the full makeup of parliament. Uh, but having said that, you can't really compare Iran's parliament to the U.S. Congress, for example. It doesn't have as much power. Uh, but it will strengthen Rouhani if more of his allies are in parliament. But again, you know, if it moved too, too quickly in changing things, the Guardian Council can block it. So I'll give you an example. Uh, for years, women's rights activists have been trying to change the family law in Iran, which heavily favors men, especially in cases of divorce and child custody. And parliament can reform that law. Uh, But I don't think the next parliament will really take that initiative because it's just not reformist. And if it does, a guardian council would block it uh, with Khamenei's blessing and command, most likely. With the assembly of experts... So there are 87 members, clerics, that are responsible for appointing the next supreme leader once Khamenei dies. Uh, but again, it's still conservative in makeup, although a lot of Rouhani's allies were elected. Uh, I think essentially all the people, or 16 out of 17 candidates in Tehran, were, that were elected are associated with Rouhani and Rafsanjani. But the assembly isn't, it's constitutionally responsible for electing the next supreme leader, but in reality, it didn't play much of a role in appointing Khamenei in 1989. Uh, It rubber stamped the decision. And so Iran's legal institutions don't work the way they're supposed to constitutionally. You know, there are all these backroom deals and informal decisions. So I wouldn't read too much into elections in Iran except for the election of Rouhani, uh, which paved the way for the nuclear agreement. Uh, you know, elections can produce shifts in foreign policy. In terms of domestic policy, I think that's much harder to achieve because the establishment doesn't want major changes. In fact, Khamenei is very worried that the nuclear agreement 
is going to open up Iran and really shake his regime. He doesn't want a cultural invasion of Iran, although that's already happened, and society has changed quite significantly over the last 37 uh, years. And that is as much as anything else through technology, isn't it? Communications and... Sure, it's technology, it's communications, it's you know, the fact that there are 7 million Iranians living outside of Iran, and a lot of them travel to Iran and have family in Iran. And uh, Iran traditionally has had a lot of contacts with the West. You know, a significant portion of its population is westernized. And you know, the establishment in Iran want, wants one sort of a country which doesn't really exist anymore. Mm. And so I think they're really struggling with that. And Khamenei has realized that because in the last two elections for the presidency and parliament, and this was unprecedented, he never said this, but he asked Iranians who are opposed to the system to vote. He never acknowledged other Iranians who hate him, basically. <laughs> this, he was acknowledging that. Yes. I'm David Karg. I'm just uh, I'm at Gispia right now and uh, uh, studying a lot uh, in regards to Iran. Um, my question is, uh, you had, I'm glad you mentioned the IRGC roles in the economy right now, and especially since the end of sanctions, um, you know, the sanctions sort of brought about their influence in various sectors. And can you speak a little bit about, you know, if Western business starts to move into Iran more generally, and maybe even the United States in the future, um, what will that provide the IRGC from an economic standpoint? Mm -hmm. And will the result potentially be counterproductive in the sense that it might politically elevate that group because all of a sudden now their, uh, their war chest has been right. uh, blossomed? So the Revolutionary Guards isn't a monolithic force. So I think some groups and organizations and companies might benefit from sanctions relief, and some might not. It just depends who they are, right? Let, let's say, because the Revolutionary Guards gets a lot of contracts in the oil industry to build pipelines, for example. So a specific guards company that loses a contract to an Austrian firm or a French firm, let's say, is not going to be happy about it. But then... Revolutionary Guards, companies that are engaged in international trade might benefit from sanctions relief. Overall, you know, I think when it, it comes down to sanctions relief, the key concern the Guards have is that they will lose their economic leverage, not just to the private sector, but also Rouhani, Rafsanjani, and their associates. Uh, because a lot of the political competition and divisions in Iran between people like Rouhani and Rafsanjani on one hand and the guards on the other aren't just based on politics or ideology. You know, there's a tendency in the United States to think of these guys as being irrational uh, hotheads. But no, you know, they made a lot of money and Rafsanjani at one point was reported to be Iran's richest person. Forbes racked him as one of the richest people on, in the world. And he's lost that position. He's lost that position to the guards. And when Ahmadinejad was president, Ahmadinejad's allies. So part of the competition is between these economic elites. Um, but of course, Rouhani also wants to make sure that people who voted for him, the middle classes, 
the professional class in Iran also benefit from sanctions relief because he does have a mandate from them. The Revolutionary Guards don't have a mandate from the people. You know, they get, get their orders from Khamenei. So I would say overall, yes, they're concerned, uh, but some of them might still benefit from sanctions relief. You know, Rouhani has basically asked them, he's given a couple of public speeches and said, the guards have done a great job in managing big projects, but you know they should step back and let other people benefit economically and allow the mm. private sector to grow in Iran. Uh, Rouhani and Rafsanjani don't want the guards to monopolize the entire economy, basically. Mm. Michael. Uh, I've been talking to the Pittsburgh Middle East Institute about taking a, a group of 10 or 12 uh, Pittsburghers who might be interested in contemporary Iranian art. We're all going to go. <laughs> okay. <laughs> My question really is, we would have to interact with uh, some of the institutions and, of course, with the people. Um, would we be welcome, even if we were Jewish, for example? Yes. So I think for the vast majority of Americans, it's safe to travel to Iran uh, as long as, you know, you haven't published an op-ed in the New York Times denouncing the regime. <laughs> so if you go for tourism purposes, cultural purposes, for tourism, I think it's very safe because I know a lot of Americans who are going. Uh, you know, you go with tour groups, you get to see the whole country. Uh, and as far as I know, nothing has happened. Uh, in terms of cultural and scientific interaction, I think it's relatively safe as well. Uh, you just have to do your homework and you know see who you're interacting with. If if you meet with reformist officials, uh, civil society, NGOs advocating for human rights, anything politically sensitive, that could be a problem. Uh, the you know, there's a perception that it's not safe to go to Iran, for, I mean, for so many reasons, but recently because of the arrest of Iranian-Americans. So while I tell you it's safe to go, I don't think it's safe for me to go because I work for <laughs> RAND, and I've published a lot on Iran, but on TV, and the Iranian government does not consider me to be an American citizen because of my Iranian origin. So that's different than the vast majority of people who travel to Iran, including probably hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Iranian-Americans and Iranian-Europeans, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Bill? Um, President Obama spent a great amount of uh, effort and political capital in securing this Iran deal and made it a centerpiece of his, his foreign policy. I, I think at one point he described the alternative to a deal with Iran as some kind of war with Iran. Mm. I mean, could you comment on that, uh, on the significance of this achievement and, and whether it really was either this deal or eventually war over Iran's nuclear program? I think it is an, it's a historic achievement because this was really the chief issue affecting not just U.S. national security but international security for at least 10 years, if not more. And although Iran still can enrich uranium, it has given up a lot, actually. You know, I, I wouldn't have guessed two and a half years ago that we would be where we are today. You know, I was optimistic with Rouhani there would be a, eventually an agreement. The reaction I had in, when I read the agreement, when it f was first publicized, I'm not a nonproliferation expert, but I've been following this issue very closely. I thought, 
this is a pretty good agreement. I was surprised. Um, so it is a big achievement. I think the alternative would have been that Iran would have continued its nuclear activities. It would have gotten closer to developing nuclear weapons. And at some point, either the United States would have decided to accept a nuclear weapons-capable Iran or go to war against Iran. You know, you know, we can never really predict what the future holds, but I think if the United States had gone to war against Iran, even at then it wouldn't have been able to erase Iran's nuclear program completely because you can destroy buildings, you can destroy centrifuges, but Iran had mastered the technology, it had trained thousands of scientists, it could reconstitute its program if the United States uh, attacked Iran. And I believe it was the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff who said that he thought the only permanent solution would be for the United States to invade and occupy Iran indefinitely, mm. uh, which is not much of an option. So I think the fact that the United States was able to achieve a significant reduction in Iran's capabilities without going to war is very important. And I think credit should be given where it's due. From my own background, I like to throw in a nickel on that one. I, mm -hmm. I think that um, ending 36 years of estrangement from an important country in the Middle East is a very, very significant achievement. The other thing sure. I would add is that, um, you know, the, the relationships, the personal relationships that developed, for example, between John Kerry and mm -hmm. uh, Zarif, the Iranian foreign minister, during these negotiations was, was extremely important. Yes. And also uh, opens the door to, to future cooperation. I mean, for example, if anyone would like to argue that you can solve the Syrian problem, mm -hmm. You know, without engaging Iran, I mean, I, I just don't think so. Okay, who? Massey. First of all, you're fantastic. Oh, thank you. And I'm not <laughs> saying that just because I'm from Iran also, but... Uh, you could also you, say the opposite, though, if you're from Iran. Yeah, exactly. That, you know, everything I say is wrong. <laughs> you're absolutely right. Thank you. I have one comment to make, and that was, I guess... Michael, he made a comment about going to Iran with Pittsburgh Middle East Institute, and which is fantastic, you know, in reality, to create, open up, you know, all these, you know, communications. And having said that, I'm an Iranian Jew. Right. And we talked about this. And in reality is, I mean, personally, I would not go back there. Sure. Just because... I mean, Iranian Jewish. And the fact that even though the country is trying to get back to, you know, being more in the center, having said that, you could be accused the same way as my parents did, you know, just being Jewish, that they were Zionists and right. they, they were against, you know, there is no laws. Yes. So you could go there with all the intention of having some kind of, cultural exchange, business exchange, but there's no guarantee. Is that, yes. is that it? Well, there's, there's no guarantee, but I think 
being Iranian Jewish is different than being American Jewish because uh, Iranian Jews are seen in a very different light. And I know I know American Jews have gone there, right? It depends what you do. I mean, when you when you go to get off the plane and go through security, they're not going to ask you, "Are you Jewish?" Right? Mm-hmm. They got to know you're Iranian. You know, they, you're going to be in their files most likely, like a lot of Iranians. You know, they're going to be more aware of you. Uh, but not necessarily every Jewish person who goes to Iran because I bet you there are a lot of American Jews, not a lot, but significant number. I think, again, what sets off alarm bells are people who are perceived to be active against the regime. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if you have any sort of a profile, they might go after you. Uh, if you serve in the U.S. military forces, if you know, you work for places like Rand. If you work for other U.S. think tanks, no. Do, you know, I, my advice would be don't go to Iran. Even uh, I've advised Iranian American business people not to go to Iran because they could be arrested. So the guards can prove a point that they don't want those types of people. So you just have to use your best judgment. If you go, go with a tour group. If you go for cultural exchanges. Um, I don't know how you arrange that in the U.S. side. Um, but again, if it's benign, if it's perceived to be benign, uh, I don't think you should have a problem. But there are no, there are no guarantees. You know, I, don't, I don't know your personal history and background, to be honest with you. And it's a decision every person should make based on his or her circumstances. I'm not going. Um, <laughs> I'm not going. Yeah. It would probably be great for my career. I would get a lot of CNN coverage, but... Uh, I don't want to be in prison. So. Well, I don't think they read the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. So. Anyway, yes. Wait, 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 wait. In the back, all the way in the back. Okay. Thank you. And thank you for this evening. Um, if that same group of uh, conservative ayatollahs were asked to identify the five most influential Americans today. Oh, boy. Who do you guess they would be, and what would that say about where they think America is headed? So it depends who you ask in Iran. Ayatollah Khamenei says he doesn't care who is president, whether he or she is a Democrat or Republican, because they're all the same. Uh, And he thinks U.S., and he said this, that U.S. hostility toward Iran is based on differences of principle and ideology, and it's not going to change. Um, you know, f- for more worldly politicians in Iran, like Rouhani and Zarif, who've studied in the West and speak English and know their national system, um, I, you know, I do wonder if they're concerned um, with some of the things some of the U.S. candidates are saying, or maybe they're even happy, right? Mm. Uh, because then... They can say, well, it's the United States that is undermining the agreement. They haven't said anything like that yet. But if the next U.S. president tries to undermine the agreement, they're going to make the case that the United States is, an, you know, is not a responsible party. Um, but I, I, you know, I don't think they're that attuned into our, uh, 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 that attuned to our national politics. To be honest with you, you know some of the top officials maybe, but most of the establishment doesn't really know very much about the United States. 
And it's just as we don't know very much about them. Actually, the, the people who negotiated the agreement, though, like Zarif, uh, is American educated. I think his kids are in college in the United States right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rohani went to St. Andrews. So they're different. But uh, then there are people who've never been to the United States, have weird conceptions of the West, say really weird things. So um, and I'm not sure those people care as much. Oh, good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. The young man, you, yeah, you. <laughs> Hi. Um, I know that you said that we can't predict the future, but um, do you believe that Iran is not going to use or to produce nuclear weapons? Yes. And why would they want to have nuclear weapons? So for the next 15 years, if Iran wanted to produce nuclear weapons, it would have a difficult time in doing so uh, because it has really reduced its capabilities. And if it tried to produce nuclear weapons, the world could react, whether economically, politically, placing more sanctions, conducting military attacks. So I think the Iranian government has made the strategic decision to hold off for 15 years by signing this agreement. You know, a lot of people think Iran is going to cheat, and I don't think it's going to cheat on a large scale because it's not in its interests, uh, because it wants the economic benefits. I mean, things could change if U.S.-Iran relations decline, if the next U.S. president uh, decides to violate the agreement, if the leadership in Iran changes, if there's some sort of internal unrest. So it's dependent on many factors. Then the question is, what happens after 15 years? Because Iran can expand its program quite substantially, actually. The argument the Obama administration has made is that even if Iran expands this program after 15 years, the United States will have vast insight into Iran's activities and could stop it militarily or through other means, for example, cyber warfare, if it had to. You know, is that true? Who knows? You know, time will tell. Stuck's net. Yeah, you know, there, there, there have been attacks against Iran's facilities before, and today we know a lot about Iran's nuclear activities. In the future, we're going to even know even more. And some aspects of the program last 20 to 25 years. Uh, I mean, there are no guarantees. This is not an ironclad agreement. There's really no such thing. Uh, because Iran, again, tomorrow, if it wanted to, could violate the agreement. Yes. You. Yeah. Great, sure. We have learned a great deal through the negotiations the U.S., mm-hmm. as, as have the Iranians. Do you have any ideas or suggestions how this may affect other negotiations we do on the international level, for example, mm-hmm. with North Korea? So I think North Korea is a very different case. Uh, it already has nuclear weapons. You know, one, I think, mistake that the United States made was focusing on its plutonium uh, production and not focusing on uranium enrichment. And the Iran nuclear agreement addresses both issues. So it's actually an improvement. It's a lesson learned, right? Uh, block all pathways to nuclear weapons. But also, I think, with this agreement, it shows that economic leverage and diplomacy can produce 
solid nonproliferation agreements, um, and that even regimes that are hostile toward the United States can be engaged with, and that we can find a middle ground on issues that benefit both sides. So I, you know, that's why another reason why it's a positive agreement, especially if it lasts for the 15 years it's supposed to. We can do one more. Yes. Yeah. On, just to add on the n- regional nonproliferation, an ar- argument has been made that Saudi Arabia and Turkey and other countries would um, now have an incentive to develop nuclear weapons after this agreement. I think it's the opposite, actually. You know, I think there are a lot of disincentives for them to go th- the route Iran has because it was very costly for Iran. And if Iran can't produce nuclear weapons, then they don't have a justification for going forward. And again, it's important to emphasize this is not just a U.S.-Iran agreement. The United Kingdom, France, China, Russia, and Germany have signed on to this agreement. So the world powers have all endorsed it. That's great. I think, you know, we've got a wonderful kind of 15-year window to build a relationship, and I think if you can engage them economically, that you know may make them less likely to become a, another despot state in the future. What do you see? Look out five, ten years, especially to the replacement of Khamenei. Mm-hmm. Do you think that there will be, you know, a more moderate, you know, first leader in Iran, and maybe even to the point where the Green Party can see the light of day a little bit? Look out to the future for us. Uh, potentially, with Khamenei's passing, I think there's going to be an intense competition to find a successor that's suitable to various groups. Uh, so the Revolutionary Guards will want their own guy in. Uh, the centrists under Rouhani and Rafsanjani might have very different ideas <laughs> on what the leadership should look like. For example, Rafsanjani has said there shouldn't be one leader but a leadership council probably including him. Um, Some people don't think Iran should have one supreme leader, that it's an outdated and effective institution, and Khamenei's done a terrible job with it. Uh, So there are different possibilities. I uh, published a study called The Next Supreme Leader when I started at RAND. So I lay out some of the possibilities and some of the factors to look at. But even I think within Iran's establishment, they don't really know where they're headed. So Khamenei hasn't appointed anybody uh, and he's not going to. Maybe right before he passes away, if he has time, he might publicize the successor to him. You know, there's some rumors about who might replace him, but it could be a really messy process because uh, Khamenei is kind of a monarch, but the monarchy is not going to his son. Uh, so who comes after him, I think, could be a big point of contention. Almost as hard as the American elections. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Well, we've come to the end of our time, and I want to start uh, by thanking Ali and Dan for a great conversation. Thanks, guys. Thank you. I think we've all benefited from the opportunity to develop a more nuanced view of the topic thanks to your comments today. So um, this has been really great. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion. Again, thank you so much for joining us, and we really do appreciate your support by coming to these events. Please come again. Thank you so much. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. 
To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.